Nobody said amen, but as a call to worship, to get our hearts calmed and our minds focused, will you pray with me the prayer that our Lord taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. My name is John Farthing. You might wonder what is Farthing doing up there this morning. I have two qualifications. I'm a friend of John Ray's. (laughs) But then again, who isn't? Everybody loves J. Ray. And I'm also Norma's guy. Uh, We have two Normas here. And in Wargo Cove, where we live, uh, Norma One, Norma Barrick, is here with us, dear neighbor and sister in Christ. And Norma Two, that's by way of seniority. (laughs) Norma One was there for several years before Norma Two got on the scene. So to keep them straight, uh, their names have become One and Two. But I am Norma's guy. She is a member of the teaching team, and as you well know, uh, gifted and graced in many ways uh, for the teaching ministry of the church. Uh, Speaking of of Norma, uh, when we fell in love mm, 16 years ago and began getting to know each other, She was horrified to learn that I had never seen Gone with the Wind. I had never seen Casablanca. I was cinematically illiterate. I mean, I missed the great ones. So she's been working on my cinematic literacy. And... um, That will be an angle that we will touch again after the reading of the Word of God. I think I have a few things to say that are important today, but I know what I'm getting ready to read in your hearing now is important because it is God's own Word to us here and now. From Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. At one time, the whole earth spoke the same language. It so happened that as they moved out of the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled down. They said to one another, Come, let's make bricks and fire them well. They used brick for stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, Let us build ourselves a city and a tower that reaches heaven. Let's make ourselves famous 
so that we won't be scattered here and there all over the earth. God came down to look at the city and the tower these people had built. God took one look and said, one people, one language, this is only a first step. No telling what they'll come up with next. They'll stop at nothing. Come, we'll go down and garble their speech so that they won't understand each other. Then God scattered them from there all over the world. And they had to quit building the city. That's how it came to be called Babel. Because God there turned their language into Babel. From there God scattered them all over the world. And then uh, quite a different story from Genesis 28, beginning with verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went to Haran. He came to a certain place and camped for the night, since the sun had set. He took one of the stones there and set it under his head and lay down to sleep. And he dreamed. A stairway was set up on the ground, and it reached all the way to the sky. Angels of God were going up and down on it. Then God was right there before him, saying, I'm God, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. I'm giving you the ground on which you're sleeping. I'm giving it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will be as the dust of the earth. They'll stretch from west to east and from north to south. All the families of the earth will bless themselves in you and in your descendants. Yes, I'll stay with you. I'll protect you wherever you go. And I'll bring you back to this very ground. I'll stick with you until I've done everything I promised you. Jacob woke up from his sleep. He said, God is in this place, truly, and I didn't even know it. He was terrified. He whispered in awe, incredible, wonderful, holy. This is God's house. This is the gate of heaven. Jacob was up first thing in the morning. He took the stone he had used for his pillow and stood it up as a memorial pillar and poured oil over it. He christened the place Bethel, God's house. The name of the town had been Luz up until then. Jacob vowed a vow. If God stands by me and protects me on this journey on which I'm setting out, keeps me in food and clothing, and brings me back in one piece to my father's house, this God will be my God. The stone that I've set up will be a memorial pillar that will mark this as the place where God lives. And everything you give me, I'll return to you. 
notice that that's how chapter 28 ends. That's how the story ends. God comes and makes a promise with no ifs attached. Jacob immediately says, well, if you'll do this, I'll do that. And God doesn't answer. God doesn't respond at all to the invitation to make a bargain, to make a deal. Let that sink in. Um, I, I said that Norma is working on my cultural literacy. She's seen all the movies that every educated human being ought to have seen by the time he reaches 70. And uh, she, she keeps a list of the American Film Institute's top 100 on the nightstand. And we're chipping away at them. I know more about movies now than I did before Norma got a hold of me. I know, for instance, that the American Film Institute has a list of the 100 most quotable lines from the history of film literature. Uh, lots of these I didn't know, but I'll bet you will know them all. And I know them now. Uh, number five on that list. Here's looking at you, kid. Huh? Number 15. E.T., phone home. Number 44. I see dead people. Number 65. Elementary, my dear Watson. And then, of course, number one. Frankly, my dear, I don't... Oh, I don't... I'll let you finish that one for yourselves. But lately, I've been thinking a lot about number 11, which features Strother Martin in the role of a brutal, vicious, chain gang boss in Cool Hand Luke of 1967. What we've got here is Failure to communicate. Pray with me. Lord, we have a hard time communicating with each other, with our own conscience, with you. What we have here is a failure to communicate, we ask you at this hour to send the grace of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit to sharpen our vision and to soften our heart so that the language barrier will be broken. And we will be ready for a life of communion with you and with one another. Amen. Long ago, I learned just enough French to embarrass myself when I'm in the presence of native French speakers in France or Quebec or Haiti. 
while I was in graduate school, I got to spend two summers at the Ponderosa family campground in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They actually paid me to be a religious beach bum, preaching three times each week, helping campers who got in trouble or had to deal with bad news from back home, organizing lots of volleyball games and sand castle building contests. And oh, you can believe it, we played lots of bingo. Some of my happiest memories from, from those two summers in, at Myrtle Beach have to do with the French Canadians, the Quebecois, who come down to Myrtle Beach each summer looking for warm water to swim in. I found them to be kind, sensitive, gentle, good people with an amazing sense of humor. I spoke just enough French to be able to communicate with them a little, and they really seemed to appreciate that. I soon learned that the Quebecois enjoy playing chess, l'échec, as they say, and they're very good at it. My chess skills aren't much better than my French, but they begged me to play with them, and I did, even though I knew that I couldn't offer them any really serious competition. But once, out of pity, I think, one young Quebecois teenager named Alain Allen had mercy on me. I, I'll always believe this. He denied it, but I think it was sheer, out of sheer pity. He threw away his queen, and he lost one of his rooks and let me win. And when I realized that I had my friend checkmated, I threw up my hands in triumph, and I tried to say in French, aha. Je suis le grand champion. I'm the grand champion. But my tongue got all tied up. And I blurted out, Aha! Je suis le grand champignon. Which means, I'm the big mushroom. <laughs> Ever thereafter, People in my family, whenever I got an article published or got a promotion at Hendrix or something of that sort, and I was gloating and feeling kind of self-satisfied, one of them would say, yeah, Dad, we know you are, after all, the big mushroom. <laughs> something got lost in the translation. What we have here is failure to communicate. Sometimes I can't help suspecting that this is God's verdict over our personal and social lives, over our politics, our religion, our relationships, 
our history, what we've got here is failure to communicate. Language is distinctively human, essential to what makes us human. But we just don't speak the same language, do we? We're made for communion, but we don't know how to communicate, not with God, not with those who are dearest to us, not with our friends, much less with our enemies, Republicans and Democrats, talk past each other. Parents and children have a hard time understanding each other. And when Baptists and Episcopalians try to communicate, it's as if they are speaking at least two different languages. We have a hard time communicating. You hear a lot of voices today lamenting the divisiveness that marks our nation and our world. We're really not united, not even in the church. And there's a lot in our divisiveness to grieve about, a lot to repent of. Now Genesis 11 describes a moment when all the people of the earth were united. Not only by a common language, but also by a shared purpose. But what united them was a determination to take charge of their world on their own terms without any concern for how God might be involved in all that. The builders of the tower felt sure that they could fend for themselves, that they could resolve the fundamental issues of life on their own. So they set out to make their mark in history, to make a name for themselves by building a tower that would reach all the way into heaven itself. The name Babel comes from an Assyrian name, Bab-Ilu, which means the gate of God. And the builders of the tower were sure that they could open God's gate by themselves. They were going to storm heaven by force. How'd that work out for them? For all their ingenuity, for all their cleverness and ambition, the result was a human catastrophe. They were trying to build their own world on a godless foundation, and God saw that the result could only be destructive and demonic. So God put an end to their project by confusing their languages, which set the stage for all the failures to communicate that have plagued us ever since, from Babel to Fayetteville. 
We're not really all that different from the builders of Babel, are we? We're fascinated by the hope that our learning, our science, our technology will at last make us self-sufficient. Be honest now. Don't we all believe somewhere deep in our hearts? Doesn't this culture presume that sooner or later the natural scientists are going to solve all the basic issues of life? Why, if we can just build a computer that's big enough and smart enough and fast enough, we'll refine artificial intelligence and we'll create artificial organs and limbs and give us time enough and we'll just abolish death. We'll gain immortality for ourselves on our own. Isn't that dream somewhere deep in this culture of ours? But the story of the tower is God's own warning that our pretense of self-sufficiency is not just arrogance, but a fatal delusion. Oh, we so want to be in control. We so want to be in charge. And we think if we just try hard enough, we can make that happen. That's why we're always shocked and puzzled and confused and disappointed when a hurricane or an earthquake comes along with a rude reminder of how laughable it is to think that we're in control of our own world or of our own lives. We're so sure that we can fix what's wrong with our world on our own terms if we just try hard enough by our own wisdom and power and cleverness and technology. How's that working out for us? You and I are products of a society that worships at the altar of self-help, self-reliance, personal initiative, individual responsibility. Maybe we don't come right out and say it out loud, but we try to live as if the poet was right when he said, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. We can build a city. We can build a tower. Or even better, we can launch a satellite into outer space to send us really cool pictures of the moons of Saturn. We got this covered, right? Meanwhile, back at home, we still don't know how to talk to each other. We all hope to get our 15 seconds of fame, just like the builders of Babel. 
who were trying to get famous. Let's make a name for ourselves in another translation. Now, deep within, they knew better. Deep within, they just had to know how small, how puny, how insignificant they were on the cosmic scale of things. And that was for them, as it is for us, a terrifying thought. It had to arouse deep feelings of anxiety, which they thought they could overcome by making their own deep footprints in the sands of time, etching their achievements into the minds and memories of the human family for all time to come. So they said, come on, let's make ourselves a city with a tower that will reach into heaven and we'll be famous. We'll make a name for ourselves. The psalmist says, let them praise the name of the Lord for his name alone is exalted. Psalm 148. But the builders of the tower wanted to exalt their own name. Let us build ourselves a city. Let us build ourselves a tower. They cried, forgetting that unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. How did all that work out for them? How did it all work out? Now shift your attention for a moment from Babel to Bethel, from the tower to the ladder. For all his faults, you've got to say this at least about Jacob. He suffers no illusions about his own self-sufficiency. His world is collapsing around him and he knows it. He's tricked his aging father. He's stolen his brother's inheritance. Now his brother is determined to get revenge by killing him. Jacob knows all about his own weakness. Jacob knows how vulnerable he is. His life has turned down a dead-end road, and the one thing he knows for sure is that he is not in control of anything. Jacob is at the end of his rope, facing a crisis that he knows he cannot work his way out of. But that's precisely when God encounters him in a moment that will change his life and the life of the world forever. Jacob's, sto Jacob's story begins in Genesis 25 with his birth, and it goes on for several chapters. But the first time we hear Jacob making any reference to God at all is in the text that I read for you just a few moments ago in Genesis 28, verse 16. The first instance of his giving any awareness of the presence and the power and the purpose of God Jacob's fast asleep when he sees a ladder connecting earth and heaven. 
And he hears God speaking to him. When he wakes up, he doesn't say, wow, that was a weird dream. And he doesn't say either, gosh, I've just had a profound religious experience. The first sentence out of his mouth has as its subject, not Jacob, but God. Surely the Lord is in this place, he said. And at that moment, his life began to be transformed. God is in this place, truly, and I didn't even know it. This is God's house. This is the gate of heaven. Ah, remember that phrase? This, not Bab Elu, not Babel, this is the point of contact with God. Jacob learned something that night that the builders of the tower would never know. From that moment on, Jacob's connection, Jacob's communication with God is real and permanent. And he becomes a vehicle of God's promise to bless not just the firstborn of Isaac, not just one human family, but all the families of the earth. Well, it strikes me that there are two fundamental ways of bridging the gap between heaven and earth. There are two basic ways of making contact with God. One is the way of the tower from the bottom up. It's our project. It's about what we can do to put things right for ourselves. It's about building our own religious edifice one brick at a time. Oh, we'll get God to love us by all the good things we do, by donations to the church, by faithful participations in our grace groups, by gifts that we make to our favorite charities and televangelists. We're going to build a, a, a tower that will bear witness to our virtue, our success, our achievements, our religiousness, and we think that will make everything okay with us, both for this world and for the next. But tower building always ends, as it did at Babel, in confusion, misunderstanding, divisiveness, and collapse. The other way is the way of the ladder from the top down. When God speaks to Jacob at Bethel, the promise that he makes is unconditional with no ifs, ands, buts, or maybes. When at the end of the chapter, Jacob offers to do something to please God in return, God just ignores him. God will not barter with Jacob or with you or with me. What Jacob does, 
What Jacob promises to do or not to do makes no difference as far as God's concerned. Now, it might make a lot of difference as far as his neighbors are concerned. But in the vertical dimension, it makes no difference at all. This is God's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. It's God's project, not Jacob's. It's about what God wants to do for us that we could never do for ourselves. It's not a tower we build. It's a ladder God uses to renew his connection to us at just the moment when we would least expect anything of the sort to happen. It's all about a God who goes on seeking us even when we're on the run. And it always ends in a promise that God is with us. God will stick with us. God is for us. God is working out a future more glorious than any we would have dared to imagine or hope, much less achieve for ourselves. It's not about what we have done to set things right. It's about what God has done to fulfill the promises concerning a Savior in whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that's why we sing, to God be the glory. Great things He has done. What's the bottom line? Well, I think it's, it's this. The history of, of salvation, the theme of our song, is from beginning to end a story that's not about what we can do and got to do for ourselves. The subject of the sentence is not I or we. It's really not all about me or us. The subject of the sentence is God. It's about grace. It's about what God has done freely, unconditionally, with no bargaining, no bartering. It's what God has done and is doing and will keep on doing for us that we could never, never, never do for ourselves. Now, the reformers of the 16th century, 500 years ago, the reformers from five centuries ago will have a word to say to us about all of this in the coming weeks as we celebrate 500 years from October 1517 to October 2017. In this very moment, though, with Martin Luther and John Calvin and William Tyndall and all the saints, we affirm that the ground of our life and of our hope is not our achievement, but the gift of God's grace. It's sola gratia. It's by grace alone. More about that next Sunday. Amen. Amen. The worship team will reassemble, I think. Norma, would you join me here at the altar? You feel the connection between a word like communicate and a word like 
communion. You feel the difference? On the night before he suffered and died for us, Christ our Lord gathered with his friends and followers as he has joined us here this morning to share a meal of bread and wine Eating together is one of the most profound ways in which our misunderstandings and our barriers that separate us from one another will be overcome. The family that eats together stays together, and that includes the family of God at 2828. They sat around together. Uh, Jesus was in that room with a bunch of losers, you know? Judas Iscariot was there. He was getting ready to betray him. Peter was there. He was going to deny, deny him three times before the sun rose. Thomas was there. He was going to doubt him. The, the whole gang, they were all going to run away. But that was not then for them, and it is not now for us the decisive factor. Were they worthy to share that meal with Jesus? Of course not. Are we worthy to partake of Holy Communion here this morning? Well, of course not. Well, what the gospel is all about is the good news that contrary to the conventional wisdom, I'm not okay and you're not okay, but that's okay because Jesus is okay. And it's on the basis of his worthiness and not ours that we gather to share this holy meal. Gathered with them, he took the bread in his hands, gave thanks to God, broke the bread, offered it to them as he offers it to us now, saying, take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the chalice, raised it toward heaven, gave thanks to the Father for the fruit of the vine. And then he offered it to them as he offers it to us now, saying, drink from this all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink from this cup in remembrance of me. Isn't it precious that there's no if about it when Jesus gives that invitation? If you're good enough, come on down. No, that's not what Jesus says. If you want to find Jesus, if you want to restore the connection, the communication, the communion with the living God revealed to us in Jesus our Lord, you've come to the right place because he wants to make contact with you too. And he's here waiting for you. Will you come?